Malachi 2, verse 10 through 17. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our current teaching series is through the book of Malachi, The Father, Heart of God. This weekend is a continuation of last weekend, Be Faithful to Him. Be Faithful to Him. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 2. We'll be looking at uh, verses 13 through 17 in more detail. We covered last weekend verses 10 and 12. So grab your Bibles. A Catholic girl in catechism was asked to define the word matrimony. She said, oh, it's that place of torment where you have to wait until you get to heaven. The priest said, I think you're talking about purgatory. The bishop said, hey, wait a minute, she might have something there. More pain is experienced in marriage, divorce, and parenting than anything else in the world. This is the cost of covenant making and covenant keeping. It costs Jesus his life to be in that kind of relationship with us. So as we stated last weekend, as the marriage goes, so goes the family, and as the family goes, so goes society. The deterioration of our society is due to the delinquency of our children, due to the dysfunction of the family, due to the high divorce rate. Satan's assault on the institution of marriage shouldn't surprise us. The Bible defines marriage like this. It says that marriage is to be a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman who are both followers of Christ, who are Christians. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 makes that very clear. And then Jesus validated that. 
in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. So here's the background of this book. God's people have returned to the promised land from Babylonian captivity, but things are not going as well as they had hoped, and their disillusionment has led them to spiritual apathy, bitterness, and cynicism. You can see that throughout the book in their response to God's statements to them, what he says to them. They have, they're very defensive in their response to God. So Malachi is calling them back to the covenant love of God. So the overarching theme is this. If you only knew the father heart of God for you, it would change everything. Believe me, it would change everything. It's one thing to know it in your head. It's altogether another to experience the father heart of God deep in your heart. It changes everything. In fact, as we stated the first week, you would respond by loving him. You would love him. And then you would worship him. That was second week. And then you would listen to him. That was the third week. And then you would be faithful to him. We started this study last week. I thought it would be really good for us to spend two weeks on this and what that means. And so God's people were showing their unfaithfulness and testing God's patience through their mate selection, unequally yoked, and their lack of marriage commitment through divorce. So last weekend, we answered two questions. Why is being unequally yoked a big problem, and what should you look for in a spouse? If you were not here, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that. I talked about dating and sex and and all that's involved there, and that's an important message. So this weekend, we're looking at three questions here. We're going to answer three questions. What is covenant marriage? What are the consequences of of marriage unfaithfulness or divorce? He uses very strong language here. And then what are the biblical grounds for divorce? What are the biblical grounds for divorce? So many of you know this, that soft messages produce hard people, and hard messages produce soft people. We want to be soft people. This is a hard message as it was last weekend. And most of the messages are pretty hard. If you really are serious about looking into the full-length mirror of God's word and letting it expose your own sinfulness and your need for a savior, and so that softens us and draws us closer to him. Always remember that God does not convict us. He doesn't point out our sin to shame us. He does that to save us and to satisfy us with more of himself. He's helping us to see our desperate need for him. So so if you feel condemnation, it's coming from the enemy. He's trying to drive a wedge between you and God. Condemnation has a way of pushing you away from God, but conviction draws your heart to him. You find yourself running into his arms and desperate for him. And, and because you realize, you realize this, that no sin, no, no matter what you have done or has been done to you or the suffering you may be even currently experiencing or have experienced, there's no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. He rescues us. He loves us. There's hope in the gospel. So as we deal with this, I I just wanted to make sure that you understood that and you remember that. So what is covenant marriage? We can see what covenant marriage is. He uses some very descriptive words in verses 14 through 15. Let me kind of walk through that with you. Point out those key words that helps us to understand covenant marriage. 
uh, verse uh, 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, so right there it's telling us that it's a vow, it's a promise first and foremost to God. He's the witness of covenant marriage, that vow. He continues on, to whom you have been faithless, so it requires faithfulness, though she is your companion. That's a rich word there, companion. Uh, This is the closest kind of relationship that you can have. Daniel 2.17 uses this word in regards to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're going through the fiery furnace. So, So the idea here is that she is a companion for you, he is a companion for you to go through the fiery furnace with you, to be with you through that. And that's, that's really descriptive language, that's, that's a part of this covenant marriage. And your wife by covenant, so he says, though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. So what is covenant anyway? They would typically, the, the word really means uh, cutting. They would cut a covenant so the best example of this is found in Genesis uh, chapter 15 with Abraham cutting a covenant with God. And what they would do is they would take an animal and cut the animal in two and separate the parts to have a path between the parts. And then they would walk, each one of those that were in the covenant would walk through those parts and in essence saying, What has happened to this animal, may that happen to me if I do not fulfill my vow and my promise. I think that would change contracts a little bit here if we started doing that. Yeah. That guy would come back and fix that faucet that he was supposed to fix the first time. Okay. I mean, uh, so it's it's certainly, I mean, there's there's a lot of emphasis, you know, in understanding this, so... So, and he continues on, verse 15, did he not make them one? Did he not make them one? So we said last weekend, sex within marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment. So spirit, so the foundation is spirit. So agape love, that's where you first connect. And then there's soul connection, that's phileo, which is uh, friendship love. And then you get married, and then you celebrate the connection, spirit, soul, with your body through eros love, eros erotic love of your body. So it's whole life, uh, it's a whole life entrustment. Um, sex, is, sex within marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony of whole life entrustment, spirit, soul, body. Genesis 2, 24 through 25, it says, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the man and woman were naked and felt no shame. They were unashamed. He continues on here and he says, with a portion of the spirit in their union, that's the last part of verse 15. Basically, you're just saying it's a special work of of the Holy Spirit. So that all said, Let me help you to apply this to your life. I I think the best way to uh, really understand covenant marriage relationship is to compare it to a consumer relationship. And I've got this on your notes. That's your first fill in the blank on your notes. Consumer marriage says, I'll be the kind of spouse I should be if and to the degree you'll be the kind of spouse you should be. 
See how conditional it is? That's a consumer relationship. My needs and desires are more important than the relationship. So if I can find higher quality and lower cost, then, then I'm out of here. That's, that's the mindset of our culture. It's a consumer relationship. And, and that's okay with your grocer, but not with your spouse. So covenant marriage says this, I'll be the kind of spouse I should be, whether or not you are the kind of spouse you should be, because Jesus gave me that kind of spousal love. He loved me, not because I was lovely, but in order to make me lovely, and I'll do that for you. The relationship is more important than my needs and desires. Marriage is to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so it's, it's meant to help us understand our relationship with God. Um, one of my top favorite movies, this may surprise you, but it's uh, Pride and Prejudice. That's a girl movie. No, it's a guy movie too. And... Um, the movie Pride and Prejudice is about an 1813 romantic novel written by Jane Austen, and sparks fly when spirited Elizabeth Bennet meets single, rich, and proud Mr. Darcy. But Mr. Darcy reluctantly finds himself falling in love with her and her with him, but each must overcome his or her own pride and prejudice. There's this scene in the movie, it's a breathtaking scene towards the end of the movie. Just before dawn, Elizabeth gets, gets up and goes for a walk out in an open field and she meets Mr. Darcy also going for a walk and he hadn't been able to sleep either and, and the words that Mr. Darcy says to her are pretty amazing. This is what he says. They have conversation and then he says, if, however, your feelings have changed, I will have to tell you, you have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love you, I love you, I love you. I never wish to be parted from you from this day on. And, and when you see this scene, it's, it's just as he's saying that, the sun is rising between them, <laughs> captivating music is playing, and she accepts his proposal. I can't watch that scene without tearing up. And my wife always looks over at me and says, come on, dude, suck it up. <laughs> You're gonna wreck the movie here. No, she doesn't do that. I think she's tearing up too. We, you can Google that and just see that one scene. We did that this last week, and I, I, we were both watching it. It's just like, oh, my goodness, it grabs you. And why, why would it do that to us? Because I believe it gives us a, a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. That's us. So you show me the best marriage relationship. You show me the best romance on this planet, and I will show you a dim glimpse of his infinite and eternal love for us, for us. The secret of a great marriage is to do for your spouse what God has done 
for you. And the rest will follow. Jesus' sacrificial love for you is both, is both the pattern and the power for you to sacrificially love your spouse. Now, let me, once again, we've, we've talked about this through this series. You don't, regardless of what our world says, you do not fall in and out of love. That's called lust, and it's consumer. You don't fall in and out of love. You commit to it. Love is saying, I will be there no matter what. You can't give what you don't have, and you can only give love if you are getting love. If your spouse is your primary source of love in your life, then when your spouse stops loving you, starts criticizing you, or doesn't want anything to do with you, I've had that experience. Then you'll either melt down or blow up because you can only keep giving love as long as you are getting love. But if God is your primary source of love, if you love God with all of your heart more than your spouse, then you will love your spouse well. You will love your spouse well. And you'll, and then when things are going bad in your relationship, you'll be able to do what I call love philanthropy. You guys know what I mean when I say philanthropy? Or are you a love philanthropist? It's, it's, you are receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. That's that's the normal Christian life. His love is so powerful, it even gives us the ability to to love our enemies. That that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's, that's how powerful his love is for us. And by the way, there is no way, there's no way you'll be able to do that unless your heart and imagination is regularly swept away in wonder, love, in praise of who Christ is and what he has done for you. You need to have those moments in your life regularly, either through Bible study, prayer, or worship, where your heart is just swept away and you're going, oh my goodness, I can't believe how much he loves me. And, and believe me, when your heart's filled up with that, Man, you're going to be a love philanthropist. You're going to recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. That's that's a good sign that you are are basking in the reality of his love for you. There's nothing, nothing quite like it. And in fact, I believe that out of that overflow, covenant marriages should be showering one another with both words and actions of acceptance and affirmation and affection. That should be the atmosphere of your relationship regularly telling each other how much you adore them and love them. Let me pick on the guys here just for a minute. Guys, when was the last time you looked your bride in the eyes and said, I am madly in love with you. I adore you. I am so glad I'm married to you. You have brought so much happiness into my life. See, that's what, that should be the normal atmosphere of covenant marriage. And uh, just overflowing that 
You don't want to be like the, the guy who said to his wife, I told you on our wedding night 25 years ago that I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that's not, that's knuckleheaded love, okay? That's not covenant love. That's just flat-out knuckleheaded love. That, that guy's clueless. So it's interesting, Malachi's intentional progressive flow in this book, as you're reading it, it's progressive because it builds on each other. So he starts with God's love for us and our responding to his love and so, so filling our hearts with his love and then worshiping him, ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person. So you got love him, worship him, and then you listen to him. You have intimacy with him and then out of that, then you're not going to be unfaithful in your marriage relationship. So the foundation, the foundation is, uh, is receiving his, his love and worshiping him and listening to him and interacting with him. Intimacy with God will make your marriage relationship more intimate and fulfilling. And... Um, so you see that progression. So let's, let's get into some hard work here. What are the consequences of marriage unfaithfulness and divorce? He uses pretty strong language here, as I stated. And here's the first thing. It disconnects us from our relationship with God. It disconnects us from our relationship with God. Look at verse 13, if you have your Bibles open there. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What is he talking about here? They're pouring their heart out to God, and God says, I don't hear you. You don't have a relationship with me because of the way that you're treating your your spouse. And the point is very clear. The Bible makes this clear. In fact, we're going to be starting a new teaching series after the first of the year in 1 John. It'll take us all the way up to Easter. But we're titling that uh, series, Know That You Know God. Know That You Know God. And in that, over and over, John says that your horizontal relationships reveal your vertical relationship with God. In fact, your relationship with God is on display through how you relate to people, how you love people or don't love people. It's showing you, it's revealing something to you, and that's what he's saying here. You guys, the way you treat your spouse, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Let me back that up with uh, a couple of scriptures here. First Peter 3, 7. Peter's writing, and he first of all gives instruction to the women, and then he moves on to the men, and he says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you hear that last phrase? Listen, guys. Any disrespect, even guys in general, whether you're married or not, any disrespect to women... Any abuse to any women? God does not take that lightly. He's just saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with you until you make things right there. In fact, the way you're able to make things right there is because you've made things right with God. You come back to God and you begin to take him seriously in that. And uh, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you get that? you understand what he's saying here? I don't want to see you until you go make that right. There's this disconnection. So our, our marriage unfaithfulness, um, our divorcing, uh, it disconnects us from our relationship with God. So worship, service, good deeds, see they're crying out, they're pouring their heart out to God. So worship, service, good deeds don't compensate for unfaithfulness in marriage. And, and you got to keep in mind that there's a, there's a difference between a successful marriage and being successful in marriage. You, you can be successful in marriage without having a successful marriage. <laughs> what in the world did he just say? I have no idea. Okay. Let me see if I can help you to understand that. I think a great example of this is Hosea. How many have ever read the book of Hosea? It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching love story. Hosea is a story of one-sided love and faithfulness between Hosea and his faithless wife, which is a picture or an analogy of Yahweh and his faithless bride, the church. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of that, and Hosea, was, was successful in marriage though he did not have a successful marriage. So he himself in his response was God-honoring. Even though he struggled and that marriage relationship was hard. And in both cases... The bride plays the harlot and runs after other lovers. But unconditional love keeps seeking even when it is spurned. And in Hosea's case, it, it means buying back his wife from the slave market. I mean, it's, it's incredible. She runs off with a, a, another lover and he abuses her, uses her, and then puts her up for sale. Human trafficking. Guess who shows up? Hosea. I'll buy her back and bring her home and love her. Oh my goodness. That is an amazing story. And it, it's a reflection of what Jesus has done. Jesus did for his bride, the church through the cross. He bought us back from our slavery. It's a wonderful picture. So this is what you need to keep in mind is that relationships are two-way streets. And you can only take care of your side of the street, but take care of your side of the street. Otherwise, it will disconnect you from God. You can't control what that other person is saying and doing, but you can control you and how you respond, and you can become a facilitator of, of healing in that marriage relationship. God can use you in the midst of that. If you are in a troubled marriage, don't focus your heart energies on fixing your spouse's failures, but on deepening your own godly responses to those failures. Marriage doesn't put you in conflict 
with your spouse as much as it puts you in conflict with your own sinful nature. It's the Mack truck you drive over the bridge of your life. It doesn't create the flaws, it reveals the flaws already in the structure. And boy, did that ever do that for me. I, for many years, thought it was, well, that's your problem. And God was trying to show me, no, no, it's your problem. Can't you see your flaws? No, I wouldn't have these flaws if it wasn't for her. That worked out really well. That was messed up, but that that was my attitude. I was holier than thou, self-righteous, very sanctimonious, and, um, and all along where God's saying, hey, I'm using your marriage relationship to sanctify you and reveal your flaws. That's to, to convict you, to draw you closer to me so that you can grow in maturity and intimacy with me but also with your spouse. Here's the next thing. It displays our lack of personal integrity and character. Verse 14, he says, you have been faithless. Verse 15, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Basically saying you you don't have any integrity or character. Verse 17, this is where uh, we're we're trying God's patience. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, well, how have we wearied him? There's that defensiveness. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and and, and he delights in them. Or by asking, well, where is the God of justice? And so they were doing that through their unfaithfulness, not only in... uh, in the spouses they were selecting, but also in their marriage covenant by divorcing. And they had lowered the standard and said, hey, God doesn't care, everything's okay. They were stepping outside the boundaries that God had established. And God says, you're testing my patience here. You understand what you're doing. Judgment is is coming. In fact, you're reaping the consequences of that. The society was was broken because because the homes were broken, because the marriages were broken, and and it was because those those individuals in the the marriage relationship were not going to God and loving him and worshiping him and listening to him and, and walking with him. And so there is not a stronger verbal and written commitment than the one you make in public before God of your loyalty and allegiance to your spouse regardless of circumstances. That's holy ground. When you make that vow before God and the witnesses that are there, and if you break your public vow before God in marriage, then what will keep you from breaking your vows to friends and family and business partners? You're showing your lack of integrity and character is what he's saying. Now, we've got to define this idea of integrity and character. What is integrity and character? Turn to the person next to you real quick, see if they can give you an answer for that. Say, uh, what's the answer to that? What's, what's integrity and character? Do that real quick. I'll give you just a, a few seconds.
So integrity, integrity is who you are when no one's watching. You guys, have you ever heard that definition before? It's who you are when no one's watching. In other words, there's no contradiction between your public and private life. There's consistency there. And there's no contradiction between what you say and what you do. You're a person of your word. I made a vow. I'm following through with it. I'm going to do this. That's integrity. Integrity is a part of character. And you've heard me say this probably many times before, but it's, it's not what happens to you, but what happens in you that makes you or breaks you in marriage and life. It's not what happens to you. It's not your circumstances. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. It's your character. Part of that in character would be integrity. It's what happens in you that makes you or breaks you in marriage or in life. So a person with character, their behavior is the product of choices based on biblical values. The way they're responding to life is based on uh, choices that they make based on the values that they have. A person without character is someone whose behavior is the product of feelings based on the people, things, and circumstances of life. So this person with character, they're more like a thermostat. They're proactive. Person without character is more like a thermometer. They just kind of go up and down. They're riding a roller coaster of emotions based on people, things, and circumstances. They're just going with their feelings. They're more reactive. Here's what you need to always remember, and I'm glad that my wife and I agreed on this early on in our marriage relationship. Every couple here, you need to get this. The D word should never, ever, ever be in your vocabulary. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say D word? It's not death, like kill them. (laughs) Though you might want to, but it's divorce. It's divorce. Threats create an atmosphere of manipulation, insecurity, and dishonesty. It undermines any efforts toward healing and fulfilling intimacy. And early on in our marriage relationship, I told my wife, you're stuck with me the rest of our lives. You're stuck with me, and I'm not going anywhere. I don't care how bad it gets, how difficult it is, I'm not bailing out. And she said the same. I told her that I'm like gum on the bottom of your shoe. You can scrape as hard as you want to, but you're not getting rid of me. <laughs> and, uh, and that was actually really good because it created some security in the relationship because she needed to talk to me, confront me over some issues in my own life. She knew that I was not going to cut and run. But if you feel like a person's going to cut and run, if you confront them or talk to them in any way, if they're defensive and argumentative, in which I was, or always kind of spinning it back on her, but she knew I wasn't going to go anywhere, she was persistent with her love and truth over time where I begin to realize, oh my goodness, I am a mess. It took a while to come to that conclusion so that God could begin to work on me and uh, show me my need for him. Here's the next one. It destroys the foundation, the building blocks of church and society. You could add to that even family, church, society. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
and what was the one God seeking? So what was God seeking through healthy marriage relationships? Did you, did you catch that? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. So as the marriage goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes society. God's goal is so that we would have healthy marriages, and healthy marriages have healthy homes that, that send kids out in adulthood prepared and uh, that, that's, that's the goal. So, so let me ask you this. What is the goal of parenting? Survival. <laughs> I felt like that a few times. It's like, are we going to ever get these kids grown and gone? It's just like, yeah. It's, it's hard, it's, it's, dif- it's difficult. Here's, here's the goal of parenting. I'll summarize it for you. Here's what you're supposed to be doing in that marriage relationship or as a single parent, is that you're trying to help your kids become responsible adults who love Christ with all their heart. That's the goal of parenting. And let me just say something. There's no guarantee that by you doing all the right things that your kids will turn out the way you want them to. Kids can still break your heart and, do, and live lives that are totally contrary to your own personal values and it will rip your heart out. I know that. I know that. And so you're responsible for the process but not the product. The product is in, in God's hands. They're, they're free moral agents. They can make choices. And they're sinful free moral agents. So you do your best and you leave the results in God's hands. Quit beating yourself up. In fact, you need to be so filled up with his love that it doesn't even, even the waywardness of your kids can't take his joy from you and they need to see that. That's the best thing you could give to them is that you find amazing delight and satisfaction in God, in him alone and not even their waywardness would take that from you. And, and that's, that's important. By show of hands, um, how many have ever heard this quote? Christians divorce at roughly the same rate as the world. Have you guys heard that quote? Okay. Also, all the services? Yeah, there's quite a number of people have heard that. That's, uh, that's a quote. It's, it's one of the most quoted stats by Christian leaders today. That statistic isn't true. It isn't true. In fact, here's the facts. Christians divorce significantly less often than their unbelieving neighbors if they observe their faith by attending church, studying the Bible, and praying. I got that from an article from the Gospel Coalition. So this is what you need to keep in mind. As adults, as parents, as spouses, Relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. You want a healthy marriage? Work on you. Become healthy and whole, satisfied in Christ. You want your kids to turn out the way you want them to, though there's no guarantee? You become whole as a parent. You work on you. This is what I've learned through the years is that with my kids and now with my grandkids is that more things are 
caught than taught. You can teach them until you're blue in the face, but they have a front row seat to watch how marriage works or doesn't work and how you relate and how you resolve conflict and how you work through all those details in your life. They have a front row seat. And so the more healthier and whole you become, you're gonna be able to pass that on. They're gonna catch that in your relationship and your satisfaction in him. Here's the next one. It goes along with that one. It deteriorates the advancing of our life mission. It deteriorates the advancing of our life mission. What is our life mission? Godly offspring, both biologically and spiritually. Godly offspring. This is the best discipleship method on the planet. That's why it tells us in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So helping your children to learn to obey you and to honor you will make it so that they will live a successful life. They'll live a a good life. That's the goal. And then he goes on and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, So children raised in broken homes are more likely to repeat the cycle and needlessly struggle in relationships in life because they, they're, they're sent out into adulthood ill-prepared. And it's called the homing instinct, as I said last weekend. We, we tend to always go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it is dysfunctional. Because we don't know any better. But at some point, you've got to look back and analyze your upbringing and say, that wasn't very healthy. That was wrong. That was bad. Lord, please heal me. Set me free. I don't want to continue that cycle. I don't want to pass a broken baton onto my, my children. And so your purpose in life, your purpose in life, this is what he's saying. He's saying godly offspring. Your purpose in life is not to make a lot of money, acquire a lot of stuff, or achieve a lot of goals. You don't need to go to GCU to find your purpose either, okay? That's just a joke. That's That's a good place to go, but you don't need to go there to find your purpose. All you need to do is go to the Bible. Here's your purpose. Here's your purpose. This is why you why you exist. You exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever and helping as many people as possible to do the same. If you're a disciple, you will be making disciples. You will be doing everything you can to pass that on to them, the the glory of the gospel as you proclaim it and preach it. My wife and I, that's our favorite conversation is the gospel, talking about what God's, who God is and what he's done for us. And we, we spend a lot of time interacting over the gospel, thinking about the gospel, celebrating the gospel. And uh, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are to make disciples, and it starts in the home. And do not assume the gospel. You need to proclaim the gospel to your kids day in and day out. Here's the last one. This is really a hard one. It devastates the lives of everyone involved And you see that in verse 16. He uses really strong language. He says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her 
says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So that covers his garment with violence. Some translations actually say God hates divorce. So the translators had a hard time interpreting that. So I think you could probably go with either one of those. God hates divorce. But he says here, this is very vivid language. He says he, he covers, if you divorce your spouse, you cover your, your garment with violence. The picture here is someone who bludgeons someone to death and the victim's blood is all over their clothes. Some of you felt like that as a result of divorce. You felt like you were bludgeoned to death and your spouse now on their clothes has your blood. That's the picture. It is a violent act that violates everyone involved. The carnage that divorce leaves is untold and not easily healed. In fact, as it says in Genesis 2.24, and the two will become one flesh, divorce is an amputation. It is as radical as removing a leg or an arm. It is the most drastic thing you do as the last resort. And any doctor would be run out of practice if he was constantly and quickly doing amputations. Any society like ours that recommends divorce lightly is guilty of malpractice. Okay, that all sounds severe, very severe and devastating. Is there any hope in all of that? Is there any hope? This I know, everyone here has broken God's commandments for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this, we have no right to the covenant love of God and no claim on going to heaven when we die except, except for one thing, except for one thing, upon Jesus Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's hope in Jesus Christ. His blood is sufficient to forgive you of all of your sins. And his righteousness attributed to your spiritual account makes you perfect in God's eyes. That is amazing. He gives do-overs. And as long as there is breath in your lungs, there's an opportunity for a do-over. And what you have to do is you just acknowledge your sinfulness and believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and confess him as Lord and Savior. Repent and believe in him. And there's healing and wholeness awaiting you through the gospel. I love the gospel. There's hope, always hope in the gospel. It answers all of our questions, meets all of our needs, takes care of every part of our lives. It always goes back to the gospel. So what are the biblical grounds for divorce? Let's talk about that. What are the biblical grounds? If divorce is an amputation, sometimes the doctor does prescribe it when it is necessary for the preservation of life. God allows divorce when continuing to be married would be a greater evil than the divorce. And no one can walk through divorce objectively without godly counsel. You need to have godly counsel. And uh, so there's actually two grounds for divorce, easy to remember, adultery and abandonment. 
But notice what's not on the list, falling out of love or irreconcilable differences or I'm just tired of him or her. That's not on the list, okay? Let's take each one of those. The first one, adultery. This, this could be sexual or emotional adultery along with, with pornography. And uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 makes that clear in the Old Testament, and it's affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19.3-9. Jesus also said in Matthew 5.27-28 is that if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he has committed adultery in his heart. So that's, uh, that's important. And the reason why that's important is because I've, I've talked to, to guys, many guys before, and as I confronted them over their adultery, they would say, I didn't go to bed with her. We never had sex. But you talked with her on social media or, your, or on your phone endlessly with very sexually explicit messages. That's adultery. Let me just give you a, a quick brief word here. One of, the, one of the things that happens in a very innocent way is that it can be like a coworker and they're brokenhearted and so you as a man, she, uh, she's, it's a female coworker and you go, come alongside to support her and help her through that because I'm a Christian and I want to offer help. And what happens over time, there becomes a connection an emotional connection, which becomes adultery. That's how adulterous relationships happen. And over time, the man begins to think, wait, 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 she loves me. She affirms me more than, more than anything, more than my spouse. And there's that connection here. Listen, men, you need to have good boundaries. I have boundaries here. And, and in fact, I won't, I won't meet with a woman by myself. Uh, unless my wife is there or unless the door is wide open and someone is in the office. And, and not only that, women, there's women in the church that can, can talk to you and take care of those problems. So if you have a coworker like that, point her to a female in your local church that will support her and help her. Just be a signpost, point, but don't be careful about your involvement there. I've seen so many marriage relationships or uh, Adulterous relationships happen just innocently. You're just trying to support them and help them, and over time, there's, there's this emotional, that's adultery. There's an emotional connection. And then also abandonment. It can be emotional, sexual, and physical abuse or neglect. You need to see the book, Mending the Soul. It will give a good biblical baseline for what that looks like. So that's talked about in Exodus 21, 10 through 11, affirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. I also believe this too. I believe you commit adultery and desertion or abandonment when you make your job or your hobby or your children or your ministry or any relationship as more important than your spouse. That's, that's a form of abandonment and adultery. We've, we've all been guilty of that. And so divorce is permitted but not required on the grounds of adultery and abandonment. In fact, you should do everything you can to forgive, trust, and reconcile unless over time, and this is under the guidance of a counselor, of a pastor, of an elder, unless over time there is hardness of heart and unrepentance. I don't know how much time, but over time there is hardness of heart and unrepentance. 
Christians are the most forgiven, loved, reconciled people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving, loving, reconciling people in this world. Now, let me give you some final guidelines here as it relates to divorce and remarriage. Anyone who has divorced on biblical grounds is a candidate for remarriage. It takes about three to five years to fully recover from a divorce. Beware of rebound relationships. And maybe it might not take you that long, but this is, that's kind of been the average, what I've seen, what I've been told. Here's the next one. When the divorce is on unbiblical grounds, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. That's Matthew 19.9. Jesus made that very clear. Unless the divorce was forced on you unwillingly, and now you have biblical grounds to remarry because they have abandoned you. The next one, unbiblically divorced Christians should repent and be forgiven and seek reconciliation if possible. Unbiblically divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are but repent and be forgiven and make whatever amends are necessary. But here's the bottom line. Divorcing for unbiblical reasons is not the unpardonable sin. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Now, outside of Christ Jesus, we're already condemned. Everybody on this planet apart from Christ is condemned based on what the Bible teaches. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. No condemnation in him. He took the hit for us. He took on all of our sins on the cross and brings freedom to us. And a righteousness, we are righteous, perfectly righteous in the eyes of God because of what he's done. It's, it's amazing. So repentance brings cleansing and healing. So how do I divorce-proof my wife, or my, my marriage? <laughs> I said that wrong. I wonder if Nancy heard that. Oh, gee. I was doing so well, too. <laughs> How do I divorce-proof my marriage? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning a chain for you. Fill your heart up with the beauty and the glory of Christ and what he's done for you, the gospel. Preach the gospel to your heart every day. Listen to me, guys. There is... There is no woman on earth that can keep you excited about your marriage every day. Ladies, ladies, there's no man on earth that can keep you excited about your marriage every day. The first service, a few women said, amen. (laughs) The guys didn't say that. Only Jesus Christ is great enough and satisfying enough to keep you inspired and excited about your marriage every day. It's only in Jesus Christ. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about be generous to him, Malachi 3. We're gonna learn how to to be love philanthropist. That's what we're gonna learn next weekend. And so, I'll be right up here after the service. If you're new, I would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any reason, we would love to pray with you. Let's pray. So Father, as a God of love, you sent your son as a sacrifice of love to bring us into your family of love and then to send us out to share 
and show that message of love in our marriages and to our families and friends and neighbors and coworkers. Help us to do that more and more as we learn to bask and dwell in your boundless and irresistible love. May, may Desert Breeze be a place and a people that take seriously our marriage vows and work fervently to strengthen existing marriages. And may we also be a family that supports people in troubled marriages and stands with those who have experienced the devastation of divorce or the loss of a spouse by death. May your love and truth bring cleansing, healing, and wholeness. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.